Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we talk about e-sports as the second edition of the FIFA E-Nations Cup will take place in Denmark in August, with only one African country having taken part in the qualifiers. That's South Africa, who didn't make it to the finals. Also, we talk about the mental health of sports people. We hear from the club chaplain of a club in the USA, who talks about the importance of mental health. You know, sadly, soccer often treats people as a commodity. And also Stuart on European club football, as Chelsea are the European champions after an all-English final, is the English Premier League the strongest league in Europe right now? Well, first, well done to Senegal, hosting and winning the 2021 Africa Beach Soccer Cup of Nations, beating Mozambique in the final. And these two will be Africa's representatives at the 2021 FIFA Beach Soccer World Cup. That's in Russia in August. Now, while football is popular all around the world, there's also a very notable growth in e-sports. Talking here of playing football on the screen with a PlayStation or an Xbox the second edition of the FIFA E-Nations Cup 2021 takes place in Denmark in August. It's the world's biggest FIFA E-National Team competition, and there's a 200% increase in entries for this edition, with 60 national teams having taken part in the qualifiers, and there's $500,000 in prize money. But only one African country took part, that's South Africa, who missed out in combined Middle East and Africa qualifiers, with Qatar and Saudi Arabia making it. Now, Ida, there are millions of young people all across Africa who spend hours and hours playing football on the PlayStation or the Xbox, uh, so maybe the continent should be better represented in competitions like this, although I guess the lack of organized competitions is a problem. It could be. I mean, even looking at this tournament, it's only the second edition, Steve, showing that, you know, inroads are also being made globally for the sport to develop. And the industry pulled in over $1 billion globally in 2020. And uh, that amount is expected to hit $3 billion, Steve, by 2025. So, you know, this is very much a market that Africa should be targeting. However, there are those who would argue, Steve, that if African sport, you know, in most parts of the continent is in such dire need of structures, you know, we're talking decades in with little to no change, then how can the continent move to competitive gaming? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, you look at France, for example, they are the World Cup champions. Yes, but they're also the FIFA E-Nations defending champions. So... At least on the surface, it looks in tandem. And is competitive gaming even considered a sport in most African countries? Well, there is traction in that sector. You know, research has been done as recently as 2019, projecting that Africa's gaming industry will increase by 12% over the next five years. And don't forget, Steve, that Africa is the only region in the world where the youth population is increasing. 
Now, numbers show that South Africa and Egypt are leading in the continent currently. Uh, there was a young South African becoming the first ever African player to be sponsored by Red Bull, which, as we know, is hugely into gaming. And more and more, you know, countries are recognizing the importance of esports. They are forming national federations. I mean, Kenya is one of those, actually, having recently formed the Esports Federation of Kenya. But while there are natural advantages, there are very real challenges within the continent. I mean, equipment is one of the most obvious, of course. Now, this is a really expensive undertaking, Steve, and as a result, might lock out many. And look, professional participation in virtual sports also needs very fast internet. That goes without saying. But it also goes without saying, Steve, that this is something that might not always be the case in Africa, you know. Add to that the high costs of data. But it's a really, really interesting frontier, Steve, and I can't wait to see how it develops in the coming years. Well, that's really fascinating. Some great insights there. Thanks, Ida. And uh, yes, internet speeds will surely improve in Africa, and the cost of data will surely go down. And certainly, there are so many youths around the continent playing e-sports. Let's go to social media now. Last week we asked, "Are you in favour of having no relegation and no promotion?" We heard about the Major League Soccer in the USA. This is a franchise setup which has no promotion and no relegation. This would be the case too if an African Super League was to start. Now, fans of the Major League Soccer system say this benefits clubs who can invest for the long term, and this helps sustainability without having this risk of relegation. Well, in African leagues, it is common to see clubs getting promoted, but then being relegated after a season or two, as they don't have good enough structures and finances. So, last week we asked, are you in favour of having no relegation, or maybe having fewer clubs relegated, or is promotion and relegation part of what football is all about? With your comments, here's Planet Sport Football Africa's Ash Tikiwa. Thanks, Steve. And we start today on WhatsApp with Gemor, a Cameroonian who is based in the United States, who has seen both the systems in Africa and in the MLS. Gemor says, "I'm in favor of having relegation and promotion. There's lots of excitement and beautiful stories in the game, especially when the so-called small teams surpass all expectations." However, on the other side, I think having no relegation and promotion helps to promote stability, in my opinion. Clubs can have patience with coaches and build a competitive team with good planning, knowing that good things take time. Let's not forget to achieve this in the MLS. There are strict regulations that involve how much players are paid with salary caps and recruited under the targeted allocation money system. With all that, though, I think the African Super League is not yet ready to sustain such a league. However, I'm glad discussions are happening on how to improve the beautiful game of football. And the targeted allocation money system in the MLS that Gemore mentioned there refers to an amount of money that teams receive from the MLS at the end of the season, depending on their final league standings, that may be used to sign new players and allocate to their salaries to get under the salary cap. Bakari Tamba got in touch from the Gambia to share his thoughts. Football is all about promotion and relegation, says Bakari. That's why it's called the beautiful game. Teams that are promoted to the top-flight leagues can prove to the bigger teams that they are ready to fight for the top position in the league.
If teams are not promoted or relegated, the leagues will not be interesting and there will not be much competition. And we always welcome your voice notes here on Planet Sport Football Africa. And here's Kainde in Nigeria. We have to have promoting team and relegating team. Because once there is no promoting team and relegation team, the anything they put the team into is not going to prosper in Africa. And Shamsu in Ghana agrees. For the sake of serious competition, there should be relegation and promotion to make the league competitive, says Shamsu. If not, we could see more match-fixing happening and more clubs will be relaxed, knowing that, after all, they can't be relegated. And here's a view from Martin Moses in Kenya. Promotion and relegation is what football is all about, says Martin. It's all about giving a chance to those considered as lowly to scale the heights of greatness. It's a game for the poor. One only has to read about the rise of Ibar in Spain or Sofapaka in Kenya, who came straight from the championship to win the Kenyan League in 2009 in one season. These are the stories we live for, says Martin. And here's another voice note, this time from Jesse Rando in Sierra Leone, who is also not in favor of the MLS-type Super League in Africa. I want to see club promoted and club being relegated. I think it's having more competitive. African football, now we are trying to build a standard, to reach a standard of the European League, because we are far behind the European League. Africa is far behind, so if we do that one, it will kill the momentum of the league, and then the league will just fade away in Africa. So for me, I believe promotion and relegation is much needed in African football. And finally today, here are the thoughts of Ahmad in the Gambia. While looking from one perspective, says Ahmad, for long-term investment and sustainability, having no promotion or relegation is ideal for investors. But looking at it from the other side, what about the investors of clubs in the lower leagues? Would they invest more in their clubs if there is no chance of them being promoted to the top league? So consequently, says Ahmad, this issue has both its pros and cons. So there you are, Steve. A wide range of opinions again this week. But the overwhelming view is that African football needs promotion and relegation to maintain and improve competition, both domestically and across the continent. Well, thanks a lot, Ash, and thanks for all of those views there. Now, we got this topic because uh, last week we heard about how the Major League Soccer works with no relegation and no promotion. And we heard all about it from Andy Searles in the USA and he's a fan and club chaplain at Orlando City in the Major League Soccer. Last week, Andy told us that one of the players he worked with was Brazil's 2007 FIFA World Player of the Year, Kaká. Now, many football clubs around the world have club chaplains, and Planet Sport Football Africa's Adrian Barnard asked Andy Sells what the role of a chaplain is. Sure, I I see that role um, to support the players off the field uh, in matters of faith, in matters of friendship, um, in matters of support and being a safe place where they can come to when um, soccer does what soccer does. A couple of thoughts around that. Um, you know, sadly, soccer often treats people as a commodity. That's not because there are nasty people involved or evil people involved. It's just the nature of sport, right? There's always something, um, someone challenging you to become better. There's always someone to, to take your place in the team. 
And so I see a big part of my role is to help players realize who they are outside of the game of soccer. In order to be a pro, in order to be at the um, top of your game, you've got to give everything for the sport. You know, honestly, often many of the guys I work with from the ages about three and four, all they've ever known, the primary way they've identified themselves is a soccer player, and I'm good at it. But when you get to the top of your game, uh, there's only one place to go. And in that moment, a lot of a lot of players realize that there needs to be more to life than soccer. And so I believe that one of my primary roles as a chaplain is to remind them that there's something, someone much more important than uh, just being a soccer player. Obviously, your relationship with the players is confidential. Can you give us some examples maybe of of what you've just outlined to us, Andy, of some of the ways that you have been able to help players practically in the days that have gone past? Yeah. um, uh, You know, soccer is a very precarious career to be in. It can be over in a minute with an injury. You can move um, halfway around the world uprooting your family and friends in response to one phone call. It's a career that for most people is relatively very, very short. And if your identity and who you are is, is wrapped up in being something that goes away, then the question becomes, who am I? What does it look like to have a foundation in my life that isn't quite as precarious? And for me, as a person of faith, that's learning to trust God, who is there, whatever life will bring at you. And so do lots of studies, lots of conversations, lots of counseling, lots of support to try and help the players realize that they are someone and they are someone special outside of soccer. And what we find, Adrian, is that that is not just useful post-soccer, but that's actually incredibly useful and beneficial in soccer. Ironically, if you want to be the best soccer player you can, we find it's helpful to not be consumed by the soccer identity. So to know that you are cared for, that you have a life outside of the game, actually makes you a better contributor to the game. And you've talked about faith quite a lot, Andy. I know that your faith is as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your work takes you alongside people of all faiths and none. So what is your motivation then as a follower of the Lord Jesus to be involved in this work, helping people from maybe a variety of different faiths or no faith whatsoever? Yeah, I just want to see and I want to help people and men get better and reach their potential and become all that they can be. Obviously, there's a there's a Christian aspect to that that uh, I'm able to lean into with some players, but uh, other players of different faiths and no faith aren't there yet. So I see my primary role as been a friend, as been an encourager, um, as someone who can uh, help them identify where they are in life and maybe equip them and help them to move to the, the, the next level. Uh, I want to be a friend. I want to be someone who's a consistent, compassionate, caring person for them, 
who sees them as as whole people uh, rather than just commodities within a game that that the world loves. Well, that's Andy Searles speaking from the USA, where he's club chaplain at Orlando City in the Major League Soccer. Now, one of the big stories in world sport this week was tennis player Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the French Open after refusing to do interviews with the media at the tournament. She said to protect her mental health. She says she suffered long bouts of depression since winning her first tennis Grand Slam title in 2018. And we heard Andy there talking of football players being treated as commodities sometimes and with pressures to keep your place and that their careers are precarious and that things can change at any time. I think this is kind of another aspect of sports stars that maybe we don't think about much, Ida. Well, I like the fact that such moves are making us think about it much more, Steve. Mental health is health. No two ways about it. And I have seen some really interesting analogies. There is one that asked that, look, if you can't expect an athlete to play with a broken leg or a broken arm, then how can you expect them to play with a broken mind? I mean, all in all, they are compromised. Once again, I say mental health is health. And for so long now, Steve, athletes have been expected to just shoulder everything and perform, you know, with arguments based on the huge amounts that they're paid, you know, and the fact that it should compensate. But Steve, we really have no idea just what sort of mental toll it takes to perform at that level. You know, to lose, for example, the biggest game of your life and have reporters hound you about what you could have done better if you saw it coming. If you remember, Steve, we saw Serena Williams break down just a few months ago after the Australian Open loss, coincidentally enough, to Naomi Osaka. These people are human, Steve. They're not robots, you know. And at the end of a long day, one doesn't expect to dissect a bad day in front of camera, let alone minutes after having the bad day itself. So why should the athletes, you know, just because something has been done for forever and a day, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that thing is right. And I do think that this calls for we as well as sports journalists to evaluate our approach. So naturally, the other side of the debate is, look, she signed up for this. She has obligations to her sponsor, you know. But interestingly enough, her sponsors have all backed her decision. Yes, Steve. All of them, led by giants such as Nike. And so have so many other world-class athletes. And this leads to another interesting conversation, Steve, on how the dynamics of sponsorship are changing. You know, athletes don't necessarily have to rely on legacy media to access their fans. There's social media now. And some platforms, Steve, giving even wider reach and access than traditional forms of media. Once again, I say mental health is health. Well, indeed, there's a lot that sports people go through, regardless of how much they might be earning. Thanks, Ida. There's some big issues there. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA, and our website is planetsport.tv. Right on social media this week, our question is, who will win Euro 2020? 
The delayed Euro 2020 runs from the 11th of this month to the 11th of next month, with 24 teams taking part, the tournament being played in 11 different countries. So who do you think will win Euro 2020 and why? You can post a comment on our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Who do you think will win Euro 2020 and why? Well, now to our European football expert, Stuart Weir in the UK. Uh, lots to catch up on, Stuart. And let's start with the last weekend's UEFA Champions League final. Chelsea beating Manchester City in an exciting game. Uh, what are your reflections? Well, Steve, so Pep Guardiola must wait for the only trophy he has not won with Manchester City. Tactically, I thought Chelsea got the better of Manchester City to win the Champions League final by a single goal. While the season's form would suggest that City are the better football team, Thomas Tuchel's formation and tactics left Manchester City with no room to play their normal passing game. I thought it was far from a classic game of football, but with Chelsea stopping City from scoring, it only took one defensive lapse at the other end for Chelsea to get the only goal of the game. The game was also a triumph for Chelsea's Senegalese goalkeeper, Edward Mende, who kept incredibly his ninth Champions League clean sheet of the season. What an asset he's been to the team. And just seven years ago, he was unemployed without a professional club. Now, with Liverpool beating Tottenham in the 2019 Champions League final, this was the second all-English team final in three years. A real boost for the standing of the Premier League. And of course, despite the name, the Champions League is actually a knockout cup which doesn't necessarily result in the best team winning. But are there better teams in Europe than those at the top of the Premier League? It's been a tough year for some of Europe's giants. In Spain, the champions are Atletico Madrid, with Real Madrid second and Barcelona seven points behind it. And in Italy, Juventus' stranglehold on Serie A has finally been broken with Inter Milan winning and Juventus down in fourth. And, of course, Juventus had been champions the previous nine seasons. In France, for all the money Paris Saint-Germain have spent, and despite having Neymar and Mbappé, the French league champions are Lille. Lille, a city of 200,000 people. They last won the league title in 2011, and before that, you go back 50 years. Bayern Munich did win the title for a ninth year running in Germany, but they haven't really managed to dominate Europe in recent years. So there's really no outstanding club teams in Europe at the moment. I think a good case can be made for saying that the top teams in the Premier League are the best in Europe. There's also, Steve, been quite a lot of managerial changes around Europe. At Real Madrid, Zinedine Zidane has left and been replaced by Carlos Ancelotti who is leaving Everton for a second spell at Real Madrid. Despite winning the league at Inter Milan, Antonio Conte has been replaced by Simone Inzaghi, and there are rumours that Conte is being looked at by Tottenham. Andrea Pirlo, one of the best players of his generation, has been fired by Juventus after one year, with Max Allegri returning as manager. And Bayern Munich have had a change as well. Hansi Flick has left and Julian Nagelsmann, who was at Leipzig, replacing him. Now, Steve, 
just before we leave the Champions League, I don't know if you spotted that Marcus Alonso was on the Chelsea bench for the final. In 1986, Marcus Alonso's father was in the Barcelona team in the European Cup final, and in 1960, his grandfather in the Real Madrid team that won the European Cup. So three generations in the Champions League or European Cup, as it used to be called. Oh, really? That's a great stat and a strong case that the English Premier League is the strongest in Europe right now. And Stuart, it looks like we might see the end of the away goals rule as a decider in Champions League ties. Uh, Steve, for 55 years, any tie in European club competitions, which was level on aggregate after 180 minutes of play, was decided by the so-called away goals rule, meaning that the team that scored more goals away from home was the winner. But now UEFA has decided to scrap it. Now, it did become a little silly this season, with some ties being played home and away on neutral ground, but with the nonsense that one was deemed to be a home tie for each club. So it means that the last club to suffer under the rule was Bayern Munich, knocked out in the semi-finals of the Champions League by Paris Saint-Germain on away goals. A UEFA spokesman said that UEFA feels it's now more easy to score away goals than in the 1970s and 80s when football was more low scoring and where stadiums were perhaps more hostile the quality of the pitch and the facilities quite varied now they feel there's less advantage in playing at home i think this is a good move because if you take for example a tie where the first leg is nil nil in the second leg the visiting team scores two early goals and the tie is virtually over because even if the home team scores two goals, they still lose. And there is somehow an illogicality to regard one goal as being more important than another. So I support this change. Oh, I don't know. I think it would take some time to get used to, I'll say. And to Stuart, Brentford are back in the English top flight for the first time since 1947, beating Swansea in the promotion playoff, this completing the relegation and promotion picture. Yes, Steve, we now know that Norwich, Watford and Brentford will replace West Bromwich Albion, Fulham and Sheffield United in the Premier League next season. For all the attractive football the bottom three played, the gap between Fulham and 18th place in the league table and Burnley, who survived, was 11 points, and that's the most for 20 years. Fulham and West Bromwich Albion relegated this season were promoted last season to be replaced by Norwich and Watford, relegated last season, promoted this season. It did a bit of a revolving door sometimes. And as you say, Brentford returning to the top division after a gap of 74 years, the biggest ever gap. Last season, Brentford got really close to automatic promotion, but lost their last two games before losing in the playoff. And they now have a new stadium, only holds 17,000, but it's nice to move out of the old ground, I imagine. Failing to get promotion last year meant that Brentford were unable to hold on to their best players, like Ollie Watkins, who's been outstanding for Aston Villa, and Saeed Benrama, who's been playing well for West Ham. And you could say the same about Bournemouth, who missed out on the playoffs, and they struggled in the championship this season because key players like Nathan Aki, Callum Wilson... And Ryan Fraser wanted to leave when they were relegated. An interesting situation, Steve, is that of the last 30 clubs relegated from the Premier League, 10 
have been promoted again the following season. I think the gap between the Premier League and the Championship seems to be widening, meaning that I would expect the three relegated clubs to be in the mix to come straight up next year, provided they can hold on to the key players. But equally, one would have to say that if you ask me to name the favourites for relegation next season, Brentford, Norwich and Watford are immediately among those you'd think of. It's a hard world. Yes, there's about a 50-50 chance of staying up according to these statistics and uh, even less maybe with that uh, gap widening. And what else have you got for us, Stuart? Just something on money. Uh, As we understand, most of the club's income is from TV rights, with each club receiving $108 million from UK TV and a further $67 million from overseas TV rights. Then there's the so-called merit payments, which clubs get payments according to where they finish in the league table, varying from $1.4 million for Sheffield United at the bottom to $57 million for Manchester City at the top. This means that the minimum that any club in the Premier League gets is $176 million and the most is $231 million. So uh, that shows you how clubs fund their transfers and the big money salaries. It's all coming from television money. Oh, that is a lot of money indeed. Thanks, Stuart. So we're ending the show this week on that big money note. So from me, Steve Vickers and Ash Tikiwa in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.